had a day. If it wasn't for Easter, for you know, we all got saved. God does different things in our lives. Isn't it fantastic? God is, God works with us as individuals. Hey, He'll speak to you about one thing, and something will He'll talk into your life about one thing. To me, He'll speak another, and we all got saved from different uh, revelations that God gave us. Right, that the way we realized. And for me, it was this, this thing about today, that the tomb was empty. I just, I just. I don't like using religious jargon, right? But for me, I just got this revelation, this, this, just this belief came that the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty, that Jesus was alive. And to me, that, that changed my life. 31 years ago this September, that happened to me, and my life hasn't changed since. It has changed, but yeah, yeah you know the one I mean, in the positive way, right? Yeah, he changed my life forever. He changed my life forever. Hey, he who began a good work in me 31 years ago hasn't stopped until this day. He is still at work in my life, changing me, transforming me, helping me to complete the good work that he created for me to do. And he's doing the same in your lives today. Are you aware of the work of God in your life today, church? Because as a child of God, he is working in your life today. You as an individual, he is working in your life. But for us, we just need to become aware of it. We need to become aware of the work of God in our lives because he who began a good work will complete it. He will see it through to completion, my brother, my sister. So Easter is a time of remembrance. I love this time. It's my favorite time of the year, Easter. And it's not for the hot cross buns as much as I like them, but it's for Easter. It's this, it's this, this thing that God did for us that God did for me when, when he forgave me, when he accepted me. It's so personal. It's for me. He did it for me, and he did it for you. Easter is the most beautiful time of the year. And it's been really challenging to, bring, to, to get a message together for today because there is so much that I want to talk about. There is just so much. We could sit here all day and all night just talking about this incredible event called Easter. There's so much of it. So I've had to take a step back, and we're going to look at it in, just in three aspects. I want to look at it, the cause, the cross, and the new creation. This is what Easter is about. There's, there's a cause to it. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing happens just of its own. And then there's the cross, and then there's the new creation. And so the cause, why Easter? Why Easter? What's it all about? It's a twofold answer, isn't it? First of all, our sin. Bible says that our sin separated us from God. It says that there's a chasm between us and God. Uh, uh, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 17 verse 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We all, sin is, sin is that old Frank Sinatra song. I did it my way. Do you remember that? I won't sing it. And everyone said, praise God. Okay, because I can't sing very well. But it's the old Frank Sinatra song. I did it my way. That is the, that is the crux of sin. I'm going to do it my way. But God, the love of God and the mercy of God, the God who created us for fellowship, who created us to have a family, not that he needed us. God doesn't need anything. God is the all-sufficient one. But he created us for fellowship in his image and in his likeness that we could have fellowship with him. 
And because of his love, he says in John 3, 16 and 17, and you'll all know this, most famous of scriptures, right? For God so loved the world. Why Easter? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And verse 17, even more profound, I believe. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What is the cause? Why are we here? Why Easter? Because of our sin, because of God's love, because God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whatever your background, whatever mistakes you've made, whether, whether it was mistake or on purpose, he loves you, that you could stand before him, that you could come to him, that his, your sins could be forgiven and washed away by the finished work of Jesus at this time of Easter at Calvary. He didn't send a son in the world to condemn you and hold you down for your sin and make you feel bad and grovel and rub your nose in it like, a, like you do with a puppy, but to forgive you, to set you free. Romans 5, verse 6 to 8 says it like this. It says, for while we were still without strength, unable to save ourselves. You know what? A drowning man can't save himself. And we were drowning. We were stuck in our sin. All we could do was try to do what we could for ourselves. Everything was about us. It's just our nature. A drowning man can't save ourselves. And we were without strength. But in due time, we've been talking about that Kairos moment in recent weeks. At that, that Kairos time, Christ died. For, for the good people, uh, for the righteous people, for the noble people, for the, for the wealthy people perhaps. No, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man, a righteous man, a, a holy man, would one die. Perhaps for a good man, someone who does good things and is a philanthropist and gives to the poor. Perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love to us. I'm so sick of people, I love you, brother, I love you, brother. No, come on, words are cheap. I, I want to be loved, don't we all? Yes. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to fix up our act, to get our act together and then come and pay the price for us. He did it while we were still sinners. In other words, while we were enemies of God, enemies of God, cursing his name, living life the way we wanted to, the Frank Sinatra, I will do it my way, and then cursing his name when it doesn't work out the way we, way we wanted. Where is God? Why, why, why is there all this mess in the world? If there's a loving God, where is he? Well, sunshine, look at the way you're living for yourself. I did it my way, but God must just fit in and be fashioned in my image and likeness is, is, the, is the crux of all sin. But the Father, the Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, he is love. The Bible says that God is love. He doesn't have love. God is love. We'll, we, we, we'll, we'll see it later in the, in the message today, hopefully. Hanging on the cross there, they've crucified Jesus. They've, they've nailed him, nailed him to a cross. And he hangs there and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So while man is cursing God and blaming him for our mistakes and for the mess we've made of this, Jesus is looking down and says, Father, forgive them. Give them another chance. Jesus, 
The Father is the God of a second chance and a third chance and a hundredth chance. As many as it takes, God will give us every chance we need. He is the God of another chance. God is love. So the cause, the reason we're here today, celebrating Easter, our sin and God's love. Secondly, the cross. The cross. The cause, the cross. The impact and the, the effect of the cross can be felt throughout our lives. It is, it, is the, it is the turning point in the history of mankind. In calendar days, it stretched probably from, from the Passover supper through to Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week. And so it's just way too big to be able to, to, to share all of that. But I want to just pull out some, some highlights that I've just... That, that I've just felt while, while, while going over the account of this time. Just to lay some context, Matthew 26, 18. So we're going to look at the cross, but I just want to put this into context, okay? The cross into context. Matthew 26, 8. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they've said to him, Lord, the Passover is, the meal is coming up. Where do you want us to, to prepare the, the place for you where we'll share it together. And he says this to them. He says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. My time is at hand. And that word again is kairos. That word, it's, it's that kairos moment. It's that, it's that time that's been set aside by God. for an, It's an appointed time for something to happen. And Jesus says, this is my time. My time is at hand. We're going to celebrate the Passover together. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. The events that unfolded in the next couple of days weren't going to take him by surprise. He wasn't going to be thrown off God. He knew what lay ahead. In fact, a few verses later in, in, in Luke's Gospel, 22:15, Jesus speaking, and he says to the disciples, as they're sitting down to the meal, he says to them, with fervent desire, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What a thing to say. This wasn't some, it wasn't some nostalgia or some nostalgic thinking of Jesus' part that, hey, this is our last meal together, guys, and, you know, I'm going to believe in you and I'm going back to the Father and, you know, cheers for now. It, was, there was no, it wasn't nostalgic. It wasn't, it wasn't this, is the, this is the beginning of the end of my time with you. But, but this time that he was coming to, this, this, his fervent desire was, was the, the, the central reason why he was born in this world, to, to come and to establish a new covenant through the, through the shedding of his own blood that we could enter into this thing that we know as grace, where we wouldn't have to work and, and, and perform in order to be made acceptable with God, but where we could enter in through his finished work. And he says, with fervent desire, I've desired this time. The writer of Hebrews, looking back at the cross, says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was, he had this fervent desire. He knew what lay ahead of him. And this fervent desire was the joy of seeing you and I delivered from the power of darkness, delivered from that stronghold of sin, and able to live free before God, free to know eternal life with God for all eternity. This was the fervent desire. So he knew what lay ahead. He'd been waiting for it all his adult life. And in fact, we, I, I don't think there's anybody here who would argue that the cross was the will of God for his life. 
It was the purpose. He was born. He knew it was going to come. The prophets, the Old Testament prophets, had prophesied this, and we can, we can see it in so many accounts in the Old Testament where they've prophesied the coming of the Christ and even more specifically his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And we're just going to lift out one of those today. Psalm 22 Verse 7 and 8, and then 12 down to 18. I've just had to take extracts out for the sake of time. I didn't press start. I've still got 35 minutes. Ha ha. Okay, cool. So, <laughs> Psalm 22, verse 7 to 18. Listen to this. Now, this is a messi- what do we call it? A messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm. It's a, it's a prophecy about the Christ who is to come. It's written by David, King David. A thousand, a thousand years before Jesus is born. One thousand years. It's also six to seven hundred years before crucifixion is even invented. They say it was the Persians who invented crucifixion in around three to four hundred BC. So this is about six or seven hundred years before crucifixion is even invented. And, and just a footnote on crucifixion. You know that word crucifixion. Um, that well, crucifixion in its first place is that they acknowledge it is possibly, possibly, one of the most painful forms of death ever invented by mankind. It's, it's, it's that word crucifixion is where we, the English language derives the word excruciating from. Crucifixion, they get excruciating, which, 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 which signifies a, a, a slow, it's a form of slow, painful suffering that brings a point, person to a point of death, to death. But that's what it's about. This is what the crucifixion is. It is a slow, painful suffering invented by the Persians six to seven hundred years after this is written. So let's just read this. So the prophet says, David prophesying says, all those who see me, and that's a capital me depicting the Son of God, ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And verse 12, he says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. You know, they say when, when a person is hung on that cross, eventually what happens is the, 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 joint, the bones get pulled out of joint. The ligaments snap. As, 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 the, as, the, as the weight of the body, they can no longer hold it up with their muscles. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. Dogs, the uncircumcised. For the Jew, the, the dogs were the uncircumcised. Jesus is crucified by the Romans. The uncircumcised. The dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Before crucifixion was ever known, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And you can read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you see all of this come to pass in every one of those accounts. Isaiah 50, he says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. These were prophetic. These were were the, the, the written scriptures that Jesus knew. He had told the disciples, 
Go and tell that man that my time has come. He knew it was his time. He knew what lay ahead. He knew what lay ahead. And yet, and yet, in order to get through the cross, he had to first get through Gethsemane. He had to get through that garden of Gethsemane. You know, when the falling away happened in the first garden, so the reconciliation was going to take place in the second garden. That quality choice, the decision to go through it, was going to take place in the second garden. That garden called Gethsemane, and it means the word Gethsemane was the olive press, uh, olive press, where they would take the olives and they would put them under pressure, squash them and get the juices out of them, get that olive oil out of them. So symbolic of the pressure that Jesus would, would experience in this garden, knowing full well why he was here, knowing that this was God's will for his life, and yet now he has to go through it himself. Symbolically, that pressure that would come of Jesus was, was, it was the weight of the sin of the world. You know, it would be one thing to stand before a holy God. And by holy, I don't mean wrathful. I don't mean vengeful. I just mean just. I just mean an absolute just judge. Yeah? Who, who this is right and this is wrong and, 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 and this is what we do about it. This is what the, the law says. A just God. It would be bad enough to stand before any just judge being guilty for our own. But can you imagine standing before that same just judge with the weight of the sin of the world, not just yours, but everyone, every pedophile, every Hitler, every, 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 every Putin, every, hmm, everyone that was ever born. The weight of the sin of the world was his, on, on his shoulders alone. Alone. And this is, this is just one of the things that strike me from reading these accounts this weekend and trying to, trying to see what, what does God want, us, want to say to us. And it's this lone, aloneness, if there is such a word. It's, it's the separation, it's the isolation that Jesus experienced at this time. You see, the Bible tells you and I that, and you can have a look in Romans 8, 30, 30, 35 to 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Hmm? What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he carries on. He says, no, nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because Jesus was separated from the love of God for us. And we see Jesus in this time in the garden where he is isolated. He's separated and isolated. He goes into the garden to pray. He goes into the garden to pray. And and he takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. You know, just because something is God's will doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's, it's pleasant. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as your will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus had desired with fervent desire 
to, to cut this new covenant for us so that we could be out of day. But the flesh is still weak. He still had to get through this time of, of, of choice when he would take that cup. When he would take that cup. You know, the cup that we, that we partake of today, the Lord's cup, it's a, it's a cup of salvation. Today we come to the Lord and he gives us that cup of salvation. We can drink of the cup of salvation. The cup that Jesus was offered was the cup of judgment. He had to drink the cup of judgment so that we could have the cup of salvation today. And he, and he goes through this incredible, incredible pressure, having to choose to, to, to receive this cup of judgment. Somebody said that the garden was the place where Jesus bore the crushing weight of the cross privately with the Father before he bore it publicly at Calvary. The garden was the place that Jesus bore the crushing weight of the cross privately with the Father before he bore it publicly at Calvary. Praise God. You know, praise God for Jesus. You know, he was born into this world as a man, born of a woman, the seed of a woman, right? He was one of us in all aspects, fully God yet fully man. You understand that, hey? And he, had to, he operated in this life as a man. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, just like he anoints you and I today with the Holy Spirit. As a man, God anointed God, but Jesus had to operate as a man in order to be our substitute. I just want to just take a step back further. In John 14, 13, just before the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, listen guys, I'm not going to be talking with you much longer. I won't have much more time with you, in other words, because the ruler of this world is coming for me. He says, but he's got nothing in me. And if you look back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when God first anoints Jesus with the Holy Spirit, do you remember when he's uh, baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove in bodily form upon him? And the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. For 40 days, he, he, is, he, is, he fasts. And at the end of 40 days, when he is hungry, near the point of death, the tempter, the devil, comes to him and tempts him. And he says to him things like, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Because you know you're dying. You better eat them because you're going to be dead. What good will that be anyway? Right? Trying to get him to disqualify himself. Trying to get him to act in his godliness. And so disqualify himself, because the only person who, who can be our substitute has to be one of us. Our God couldn't pay the price for us. It had to be a man. A man sold us out. A man had to be the substitute to get us back in. Does that make sense to you? So, this is, so, so and, and at the end of those 40 days, at the end of the, te of the tempting, the Bible says that the tempter left him for a more opportune time, for a more opportune time, when Jesus would be once again weak, at a point of weakness. He came to him once when he was nearly dead. Now he's coming to him again at, the point, at, at Calvary. The rule of this world is coming. And now the devil has come and he's starting to mess with his head. And Jesus is in this, in this place called Gethsemane, this, this place of great pressure. And the enemy is messing with his head already. He's isolated him. His friends, his disciples, his close disciples are sleeping. They can't even stay awake. No one's standing with him. He doesn't need their prayers. Come on. But he, you, we all need someone to stand with us in our hour of need. Everybody has fallen away. And in fact, one of his disciples is in the process of betraying him. It's, we've, I, I guess we've all been betrayed in little ways in our lives by, by people we trusted, right? Horrible feeling. Terrible feeling. 
And Jesus is in the midst of being betrayed. And he knows that this guy, Judas, who, who he had let into his circle, who he had invested three years of his life into, who he had tried to help, he had, he had tried to teach him, he had tried to, he had, he'd, he'd given him, the, knowing he was a thief, he had even let him look after the money, hoping that, you know, Judas would be able to get a victory over his thieving little habits. He'd done everything for this guy, and now, that, and now the repayment is Jesus is in the garden with, a, with, with, this, with this decision to make, to take on the, the sin of the world. And his friend is out there at this moment in time betraying him. The devil is in his head. He is messing with him. He is isolated and alone with the weight of the sin of all mankind on his head alone. Luke, the physician, Luke was a physician, and Luke is the one who tells us in his gospel that it was in that place that, that Jesus sweated like drops of blood to the ground. From the, the, the incredible pressure, his, his pores were sweating blood. That was the, 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 the weight of this cup of judgment that was upon him that he himself had to bear. And then comes the betrayal by a friend. Why? Why did it have to be betrayal by a friend? I mean, they could have taken him at any time. You know, they, they had the soldiers, they had the guards, they had the swords and the clubs. They could have taken Jesus at any time, but it was by a betrayal by a friend who comes and betrays him with a kiss, getting into his head all the time. And they arrest him and they bind him and they take him to, to the high priest and to the elders and to the scribes. And, and for the rest of that night, they interrogate him. They have this kangaroo court and they interrogate him and they mistreat him and they falsely accuse him. Wow, it's terrible to be falsely accused, eh? It's, it's one thing to be accused, but to be falsely accused when you know you haven't done wrong, hey, it's a horrible thing. They mock him. You know, they put a blindfold on him and they slap him. And they say, come on, prophesy to us, Christ. Who slapped you? They spit on him. They pluck the beard out of his face. Trying to find fault. Trying to provoke him. Trying to provoke him. Come on, just like in the, just like in the, in the wilderness. Come on, turn, this, turn these stones into bread. Come on, come on, let me provoke you. Respond in your godliness. Come on, throw these people off. Use your godliness to get out of the situation. And he stays the course. And they interrogate him for the night. You know, the, the, this is the Passover. We understand that, right? Now, the Passover lamb, before it could be slaughtered, it had to be examined by the priests. They had to examine that lamb. It had to be without blemish, according to the law. It had to be without spot or blemish. So the priests would, they would take that lamb, and for a few days they would examine that lamb, and they would check that it didn't have any, any, any wonky legs or any, any blemishes or defects. And only once it had been examined would it be acceptable for the sacrifice. And here are the religious leaders. They're examining Jesus. They don't even know what they're doing. They think they're finding a reason to put him to death, but a reason all they're doing is they're just proving how innocent he is, that he is acceptable to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So they, they interrogate him. They interrogate him, and they question him, and they falsely accuse him. And comes the morning, and uh, they, they, the Bible says in Matthew 27 how they, they then plotted, they then plotted how they might destroy him because they found no fault in him all night. They had no reason to take him to Pilate and to have him condemned, so they have to plot. And they bring him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And while they're doing that, Judas, who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, 
realizes the enormity of what he has done, the severity of what he's done. And he, he goes back to, to the Jews and he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. The penny drops for him, but it's too late. They won't take the money back. But it's Judas's acknowledgement. The, the religious leaders have examined the lamb. They find nothing wrong with him. He is spotless. Judas's betrayer acknowledges there's nothing wrong with him. He's innocent. And now they take him before Pontius Pilate, and, and we, we don't, just don't have time to go into it all, but, but we could look at all that trial before Pilate, and, and Pilate says things like, he says to them in verse 23 of Matthew 27, he says, why? They start, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, release Barabbas to us, release that murderer to us, and crucify Jesus. And he says, why? What evil has he done? And, and they contend with him more and more, and then it's becoming a tumult. It's going to become a riot. And eventually he says, okay, he gets a bowl of water and he washes his hands. And he says, listen, I am free. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. And he releases Barabbas to them, and he sends Jesus to be scourged, to be tied to a pole, and the skin whipped off his back before being handed over to be crucified. But just the significance of that, that, that first act of redemption, I think, where Barabbas, the guilty man, the murderer, goes free, and the innocent one, the Christ, goes to the cross, and that is where we are. We are no better than Barabbas with our sins. And Jesus paid the price and we go free. But this was the first person we see in the gospel to get set free by the price that Jesus paid. So through it all, through all this, through all the, the, the hatred and, 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 and the, the beatings and the, everything that went around, the chaos, the chaos that happened around his, his interrogation and his trial, comes the will of God, comes, 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 the, comes the, the justification of God's truthfulness because God had promised that he himself would provide a lamb. Do you remember to Abraham when he asked Abraham to, to, to sacrifice his son? And he's like, okay, don't, don't worry, Abraham. You don't have to do it. I know that you'll do it. So now I myself will provide the lamb. And here God has provided the Lamb of God. And he has been, he's been examined by the religious and by the political. And they find no fault in him. He is suitable. He is the suitable sacrifice to go to Calvary. He's been examined. It's not just anybody that went. It was the suitable sacrifice. So they take him out to Calvary. The, to, to, to Calvary, the, the place of the skull. And there they, they crucify him. And we'll just read a little bit of it. And they come to a place called Golgotha. That is to say, place of a skull. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but, he had, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him. And we could read the rest from, really, Psalm 22 is a, is a, is a picture of, of everything else that, that happens at that time. And they crucify the Son of God. The Bible says that around the ninth hour, that's about 3 p.m. in the day, by that time, he yielded up his spirit. He declared, it is finished. In other words, the price is paid. 
It's paid in full. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit. And I can't help but think, remember John, John 12, 24, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples some months earlier, and he says to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Do you know what? Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, but three days later, three days later, church, on the third day, they go down to the tomb, and this is the new creation. The new creation, God's purpose fulfilled. God's purpose fulfilled. New creation. They go to the tomb, and it's empty. Where's the stone? It's rolled away. Where's Jesus? The grave clothes are there, but no Jesus. He has risen from the dead. You're going to have to come back next week to get more of it, all right? <laughs> but Jesus is raised from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 17. The love of Christ compels us because we judge that, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We don't serve a living, a dead God. We serve a living Christ, a living Savior. He died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. Yet from now, we, thus, we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, on that day for me, on the 16th of September, 1992, I believed that the, that the grave was empty, that Jesus was alive. All things became new for me that day. All things became new. The old was taken away and I got a new and a clean slate. And for you, you all have your experiences as well. That day when God came into your life and G the blood of Jesus washed away your sins, you became a new creation. And so this morning, we are going to break bread together. We are going to, we are going to um, remember, put ourselves in remembrance of all that Jesus has done for us. You know what? I'm sorry, if I, I realize it's perhaps been a little bit heavier this morning looking at the cross, and, and I know it's Easter Sunday, and we, we should be rejoicing and saying, yes, amen, and, and, and we are, right? We are. Praise God. If it wasn't for Easter Sunday, yeah, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the, the fact that he's alive, we wouldn't be here today. But you don't get here today without going through the garden, through the cross. You can't have resurrection until there's first been a death. Yeah. And so, and so I want to look at it in context. So this morning, let's, 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 can we hand out the communion elements? And um, what we are going to do is just, just receive the elements as they get handed around. Um, if you are a Christian, if Jesus is your, your Lord and Savior, if, if not, just let them pass. It's, it's fine. There's no judgment, nothing like, of that nature whatsoever, all right? But just take the bread and then the juice that represents the, 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 the wine or the, the blood of Jesus. Thanks, Amy. And... Um, and And we'll spend some time just, just quietly contemplating for ourselves what, what this means to us, to, to, to put ourselves in remembrance. You know, 
Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, forget not all his benefits.